You know, I am I am fond of saying, and I truly believe that the worst time to make an ethical decision is when you have to. Having a good idea doesn't get you done. And if we'd hit those, there would have been an explosion. We would have died, obviously. Scholarship should cultivate the virtues. Worry more about, am I searching for what I should be doing next in the world? Hey everyone, I'm Gavin Cosgrave, and thanks for tuning in to the Voices of Santa Clara podcast, where we aim to educate, inspire, and connect the Santa Clara community to live our Santa Clara values of consciousness, compassion, and competence. So today we have an excellent guest on the show. I'm super excited, and after finishing this conversation, I just had this amazing feeling that reminded me why I love doing podcasting, and I think you're going to get a lot out of it because today's guest has a lot of incredible things to say. Her name is Margaret McLean, and she is the Director of Bioethics at the Markala Center for Applied Ethics. She's also a senior lecturer in religious studies and affiliate faculty in bioengineering. She teaches courses on ethics related to healthcare and biotechnology. In 2017, she was awarded a Certificate of Special Recognition from the U.S. Congress and the Santa Clara County Medical Association Citizens Award in recognition of her significant contribution to the health field. In this conversation, we discuss how hospitals are making life and death ethical decisions, how the pandemic is impacting vulnerable communities, and how normal people can help change unjust systems. We also touch on religion and its link to ethics, how working with end-of-life patients has shaped how Margaret thinks about death and how we can all become a little bit more ethical. Please enjoy this conversation. Thanks for listening and hope you're doing well. To start out, could you just describe briefly just some of the work you're, you've are you been doing in these past couple weeks? You're working in a lot of different areas, but maybe just to give listeners a quick idea of some of the things you're involved with. In the last couple of weeks, you know, as well, actually, it's the last couple of months since the pandemic hit the United States and we've been sheltering in place in the Bay Area. I've been doing a couple of things. One is we had about a week to get our courses online and I have not taught online before so that's been a very steep actually vertical learning curve for that. The other thing I do is that I consult at a number of local hospitals and all of them started preparing for um, the possibility of surge and then the possibility of crisis and needing to triage scarce medical resources. So I've been involved in a number of conversations, deliberations, and the actual writing of policies around triage and other matters that are important right now in the healthcare environment. Yeah. And so I I was noticing, I, I first reached out to you over a year ago, and in the line of my initial email of some of the things we might discuss, I had like the risk of a global disease was in, in that list, which I just thought was was funny, but was something you've uh, you've looked at and thought about before this this happened. So I'm wondering, like, were you were you surprised that there was a pandemic? Were you less surprised about any of the outcomes, given how much time you've spent thinking and studying this possibility? 
I was um, actually not surprised after hearing the news out of China and the build of the epidemic in China and how fast it was spreading and how little we knew about it and how quickly it disseminated from China into Europe and then into the States, etc. I think what's surprising is how much we don't know about this particular virus. Yeah, and in in a way, this is the the moment when suddenly your your feels your area of bioethics matters more than ever, right? And there are important ethical decisions that need to be made in real time with, as you're mentioning, limited information and so many unknowns. So, yeah, like what are some of the bigger ethical issues related to the uh, coronavirus that are important right now? Well, I think the one that comes to mind first for for most people, because it's caught so much attention, are the questions about scarce resources. And those come in a couple of forms. One was, I think, the surprising lack of personal protective equipment for healthcare workers, that I, I think we were completely caught flat-footed by the fact that health Healthcare workers could not, and and I think still in certain areas cannot adequately protect themselves um, from being infected as they do their work. The other scarce resource that has caught the headlines of the papers has been ventilators, and at the beginning of this virus coming to the United States and and infecting people here you know the the wisdom got to be that people who were severely affected needed ventil- ventilators and so it became clear um, that we needed to ramp up the number of ventilators we had etc well even at at doing our best at um, getting more ventilators either by purchasing them or by directly having the government directly contract for them, et cetera, there's still it still was projected that there would not be enough in certain communities. So and and New York became the poster child for what happens when you don't have enough ventilators. And so um, locally, hospitals started thinking about, well, if we don't have enough ventilators or other scarce medical resources, tests, testing kits, reagents, whatever it might be, how do we allocate what we have? And so that is a huge ethical issue because in this case, it might mean the difference between someone getting the treatment that they need and someone else not getting the treatment. And so um, that's a second ethical issue. The third, I think, is that um, there has been increasing concern about access and access to health care. And this pandemic has, you know, kind of 
opened the curtain on some of the inequalities and vulnerabilities that have been there, but haven't been on the public radar until now. So questions about insurance and who's paying if in fact you get sick and you're in the ER and you're in the ICU. Who pays for that if you're uninsured? And questions about what we're seeing now is kind of differential infection rate and differential fatality rate in certain communities where certain communities, African-American, Native American, Hawaiian, Latino, Latinx communities are more affected by the virus than other communities. So um, I think the kind of questions about, about justice and distribution are in front of us. So those those kind of three buckets of questions are, you know, the the ones that come to mind right now. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I feel like some of the systematic injustice questions are are very important, but also super, super complicated and difficult and multifaceted. Right. But I'm wondering about maybe that that second bucket of scarce resources applied to, you know, let's say a group of people, you know, and there's there's a really young child, there's a medical worker, there's an older person with a higher risk of dying, there's a, you know, 40-year-old who's immunocompromised, there's someone with from a community who's more affected, like what are like how do you make a decision like that and how do you value because in a way it's like valuing human life right like how do you even begin to think about that type of question so first of all you begin to think about by taking a step back and looking at saving those lives that can be saved all right and trying to maximize the number of lives that you can save so that's the the beginning point for the development of what are called triage guidelines that help you make a decision. You know, I am I am fond of saying and I truly believe that the worst time to make an ethical decision is when you have to. So having thought this through ahead of time, and considered questions like the one you just asked um, ahead of time and then trying to take those considerations and those conversations and put them down on paper in forms in, in the form of a policy that then can be followed so that decisions aren't being made on an ad hoc basis or being made differently if you're seeing this ER doc versus that ER doc, that there's consistency and transparency to our decisions with the goal of doing the very best we can to save as many lives as we can, given the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Yeah, that that makes sense. And I'm I'm thinking, and this is maybe even more more broad than just the pandemic, but people are uncomfortable with ever attaching maybe a monetary value to like a human life, right? Where like a human life is, is priceless. And that's totally true. But in a way, 
for example, with traffic fatalities, right? Like we make policy decisions on how fast the speed limit is. And if the speed limit on freeways was 20 miles an hour, there would be fewer people that died and crashes on the freeway. But yeah, I think there's a lot of these areas where we make these trade-offs between, you know, safety and convenience or freedom. And in a way it's, yeah, how we value people's lives. Like, do you have any any thoughts on how we make those type of decisions or value the human life? Well, I think that, you know, in terms of access to healthcare, we kind of let the system decide for us. There's not much bright side to a pandemic, right? But but I think that what this pandemic is doing is it's putting a spotlight on some areas that we really have needed to address for a long time. And one of them is, you know, access to health care. And it's to put in place the ability for people to have equal access to good health care, which says we value all of these lives the same. That people who live in this neighborhood with zip co- this zip code are valued as much as people who live over here with this zip code, you know, who have had access historically. You know, how, how can we take what we're learning now about differential access and the pathology of this disease that's sorely affecting already vulnerable populations and not lose this lesson. You know, as a teacher, you know, there are always two or three things I want students after 10 weeks to walk out of the class with, you know, and it's only two or three. It's, it takes me 10 weeks to get there, but it's only two or three things. And one of the things we have to walk out of this with is understanding that vulnerable populations deserve our attention. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I'm so curious. Now I have to ask, what are some of the other things you sometimes want students to walk out of your classes with? Yes. Well, you know, I want I want my students to walk out of my class understanding that that ethics is a part of everyday life, that we make these decisions all the time and you don't have any choice about whether or not you're going to make ethical decisions. You know, you your choice is you can make them well or you can make them badly, but you're going to make them. And so what I want to be able to do is to try to give my students and and others tools to make those decisions well, to know that deciding for this means deciding against that, to know that following the rules may lead you to consequences that you're not comfortable with. And, and then bringing those, those consequences and those rules into conversation, you know, that's, that's, that's the main thing I want my students to be able to, to do when they, they leave my class. Yes, they have to write papers and all of that, but really it's, it's ability, it's preparedness for, you know, the tough choices that we all inevitably face. You know, whether we're in healthcare or in business or just in our everyday lives. 
Yeah. And that's a great point that everyone is making ethical decisions. But I'm wondering when you bring up the idea of these like unjust systems like healthcare or something like that, is there anything normal people can do in a sense? Like, you know, I'm not making any decisions about the way the healthcare system works. I'm just participating, right? So how do we change this system that we maybe don't have a lot of like control over, right? Like I think, I feel like it's easier to think about ethical decisions when they're like right in front of you concerning your own life, right? But there's a lot of other important areas. There are a lot of other important areas and there are ways that communities, that groups, that, you know, there are lots of groups who's, who exist to advocate for what they believe to be the right thing to do. So you want to protect the climate. You want to increase access to health care. You know, there are advocacy groups that work to do that. And then, of course, we all have the ability to, to vote for people who will carry our values, our ideas forward. I mean, the healthcare debate that we had earlier um, during this election cycle, it was a prime example of that, of where you've got different approaches to increasing access to healthcare, you know, among the Democratic presidential candidates at that time. Um, but they they were different approaches with different values undergirding them. So that's another way that we can participate is to listen carefully to what our elected leaders are saying and then choose to keep them in office or to change them out. Yeah, definitely. Um, as Part of like looking into your background, I found it really fascinating that in addition to the the bioethics stuff that we've touched on, that you've you've also you know taught and researched in the religious studies area. So like, do you see those as as related in any way, or like what role does religion play in making ethical decisions? Well, I think that you know, I mean, ethics comes from a number of sources, right? Our values, you know, come from our families, from our culture, and they also come from our faith traditions. And so it's part and parcel of many people to have a faith commitment that guides their ethical decision-making. And you know, one of those um, adages from my childhood was there are no atheists in foxholes. And that came from World War One, where the um, um, soldiers fought in in trenches and and holes that were called foxholes and were in danger all the time. And the idea being that in times of crisis, we all seek a a higher power, for want of a better word. And so and 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 maybe it's God or maybe it's something else. But in times of crisis, our 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 faith, our belief, our um, ultimate commitments come right to the fore. And so in dealing with 
with patients in hospitals, in dealing with families in hospitals who may be there um, because this is the biggest health crisis they have ever faced. And and yesterday, everything was fine. And today, now dad is in the intensive care unit, and they're asking us to make these decisions, which will ultimately affect the course of his, his life. That's when you grab those, those faith-based values. That's when you start to, to look deep inside and if you're a person of faith, really bring those values to the to the fore. Most hospitals have a department of spiritual care, just like they have a department of social work and a department of internal medicine, etc. They have a department of of spiritual care because people need that you know, in those times of, of crisis. So I see it all the time. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. And I think one of the things my, you know, some religion classes and whatnot have emphasized is that, um, like you said, all, all values come from somewhere. And I think a lot of times, even maybe people who don't believe in God still share a lot of, um, you know, often if they're Western, like Christian values, right? But that's kind of unavoidable. And I like the point you're bringing up about when when crisis comes, those really come to the the forefront. And I, I know you've also uh, dealt with some like end of life issues and maybe thought about that. And that's probably another time when the when when your values suddenly become enormously important, right? And you th- you're asking the big questions of what what matters in, in life? Maybe how do I want to spend the end of it? What's been valuable? So yeah, are there any like lessons you've learned from either th- thinking about or working with like end of life related topics? Well, well, I think there there is a sense among some people that when someone is dying, they become somehow different. They become somehow kinder or gentler or more introspective, etc. And and my experience has been that patients who are dying become ever more themselves. And there's an authenticity there that needs to be acknowledged and cherished. Even if you were, you know, as a family member, expecting Uncle Joe to suddenly be this nice, sweet guy. <laughs> um, but the, the, you know, to to be able to um, support someone in their dying is really a privilege um, to be able to help a family with the often the toughest decisions they will ever make. It is a privilege. It's hard, but you know, as a as a clinical ethicist, I am often with patients and families at some of the most um, intimate and tragic moments. And if I can, you know, help them look at their values, ask those really important questions. Um, that lead them to good 
decision making around the decisions that the physicians need to know. Do you want us to put him on a ventilator? Do you want us to start his heart again if it stops? To be able to help support people in their decision making. And and all of us are going to have to make those sorts of decisions, you know, either for ourselves or for someone else. And, you know, that's the other piece that I want my students to leave the classroom with is understanding that even if you're a finance major or you're a computer science major, These questions in my medical ethics course are questions you're going to have to answer. Maybe not today, but 10 years from now or 20 years from now, you will be making these sorts of decisions about your own health, about the health and well-being of family members, of your parents, of your grandparents. And so the best thing we can do is to think about those decisions ahead of time. Just like planning for the pandemic, right? Just like writing those triage policies. We all need to have thought through decisions about um, critical illness, decisions about end of life, so that when the time comes, we can go back and say, okay, this is hard, but I've thought about it already. Mm, Yeah, that's, that's really valuable. Thanks for sharing. It seems like like a simultaneously like difficult but also really rich and meaningful experience to be able to work with clients or patients like that right like has it do you think it's shaped how you think about death absolutely i mean it it absolutely has shaped you know my own thoughts about my own end of life decision making you know i i do have an advanced directive and i've i've changed it a number of times and and i i change it in response to learning more about what that means and what's at stake and so i think those experiences really have shaped Uh, my own thinking. And I was my mother's decision maker when she was dying. And even though I knew exactly what she wanted, and so did the rest of the family, we were all on the same page. Um, Having the courage to say, no, we, we want you to disconnect the ventilator that's what the physician had asked, um, was the hardest thing I ever had to do. But the fact that I was comfortable in an ICU, that I knew we had thought about these things and talked about these things, uh, didn't make that decision less hard. Um, it didn't make it less painful. Um, but it made it possible to to say that, to have the courage and the compassion um, to make the decision my mother wanted me to make. Yeah, awesome. Thanks for sharing. There's there's a couple of questions I like to ask at the end of conversations. Um, I, I normally ask about ad, advice for students, but I feel like you've given some great uh 
tips there. So I'm wondering, like, if you could, let's say, send a message to every person in the United States, what would you want to say? (laughs) I mean, you know, short of, you know, something like, you know, be good. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I I think if if there was a single message, it's to take the time to do ethics well. It's to understand that we all make decisions about right and wrong. That's the heart of ethics, is being able to decide between right and wrong. And, you know, if faced between a decision that's this is clearly right and this is clearly wrong, that's not so hard. But decisions are hardly ever that way. And so it's to understand that in the, in the middle, in the shades of gray, in trying to decide between two really difficult options, neither of which is really something I want to do, that to, to sit down and think hard about it and to take the time to make the decision, not to just knee-jerk ethics, but to really think through what do you value, what are the consequences, who am I becoming by this decision I'm making? That is what I would encourage. That would be the message. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. And, And finally, what does an ideal Saturday look like for you? Well, an ideal Saturday that did not involve sheltering in place would involve a trip to the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which which I can do on a Saturday. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks so much for doing this conversation. I really appreciate it. Sure. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts and now on Spotify so that you don't miss an episode. Check out the website at VoicesOfSantaClara.com for some shortened transcripts. And you can like the Facebook page and follow on Twitter. I'll see you next time.